On today's episode, we discuss a bizarre sex orgy that turns to death, as well as the South Point Five. You're listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks. People put it down, but what you're supposed to do in a small town. Bad in the Boondocks. Bad in the Boondocks. Lord, how much it can't help being bad in the Boondocks. And welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Dan. And I'm Drew. And as always, we're glad that you're here on this Saturday. Definitely. And it might not be Saturday when you're listening, but if you're a true boondocker, it would definitely be Saturday. Well, not not all people can help that because I do know that Podbean is a little late on the agenda there. So, I uh, know if I was a boondocker, I'd be waiting oh by the God, phone for up. it to show up. <laughs> All right, as always, our emails are back and up and running, so you can yes. get in contact with us at boondocks at gmail.com, or you can email me, stan, at com Or drew at com. I think we all knew know who you should choose to email. Right here. Um, as well, we had the past two weeks. We have released sample episodes, a yes. full episode and mini so that are patron only. Um, so you, please, please go on to our Patreon. Well, Patreon page. No, Patreon. And, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, and please join. Join us out of one of the three tiers we got. What are those? I know that it's like a five. We have a five, ten, and fifteen. Yeah. Each has different perks, but for just five dollars a month, you do get, as always, even free. You get ad-free episodes because we don't have any ads. Exactly. But you also get a mini-episode. We we call them mini-episodes, but they're usually twenty to thirty minutes, or sometimes a little longer. But those episodes, yeah. as you heard, we're a little bit more laid back. We just have a real good time doing those. But you get one of those every other week. Yeah, I know we really don't really think about anything. We sort of just <laughs> say whatever comes to our mind. Right. And you get a shout-out. You get a sticker. Um, now, if you go up to $10, you get a full episode once a month, as well as the mini-episode every other week. You get the shout-out. You get the sticker. Just go on there, because there's different perks for each level. And the higher up, of course, the more perks. This is just, it's not cheap for us. It's not cheap at all, <laughs> and we are doing it straight out of pocket, and we are by no means rich. Yeah. So that is the only Thanks way. Thanks for telling everybody that. Well, that's the only support that we get, and we are trying to improve, but it's slow whenever you have no type of support coming in. We have gotten new sound absorption mats, which I hope that you can tell the difference in the sound. I know on the Minnesota, I could tell the difference. Yeah, definitely. But um, anyway, it, just think about yeah. if you can supporting us. But um, I'm also getting a stage pass up and running, which is going to be exciting. We're going to have some auctions. We're going to do some auctions also. Here's what I need from you guys. I need y'all... To let me know 
what kind of thing, what kind of experiences would y'all like to be put on there? And in other words, it's an experience, um, like it could be a call, a phone call talking about cases or a live video one-on-one. What type of experiences would y'all enjoy being put up there to be put on auction where you get to auction off and the highest bidder wins? Okay. Maybe a co-episode, hosting an episode with us, or... Yeah, that'd be cool. But anyway, just let me know. Now, of course, as usual, I've got a pretty long case. I'm It's my turn to go first, and I think I'm going to get on into it, doggone it. Okay. All right. I'm just going to let you know that the case that I'm about to tell is pretty gruesome. It's pretty cold-blooded, as usual. And it has been described by many, including the Lane County District Attorney, as unparalleled in the history of Lane County crime. During the course of the investigation, homicide detectives uncovered shocking, horrifying details of a sordid, sadomastic sex orgy that led ultimately to the stabbing and dismemberment of an unwilling participant. Sordid, you mean like in the Twisted. sexual way? Twisted. Oh. What sorted means. Okay. I was thinking like, you know. What sexual oh, okay. activity is sorted? What what would that be sorted? Mm, I don't know. No, that wouldn't be sorted. Maybe rough. Oh, shut up. If you told the joke, I would get oh, it. Oh, that was a joke. If you wait, oh, wait. I, if you told it, I would get it and I would be like, haha. So oh, that funny. was a joke. Oh. Why don't you? This bizarre story opens in the college city of Eugene, Oregon, approximately 12.30 a.m. on the morning of February 24, 1978, when two human scavengers, or homeless people, were rummaging through one of the dumpsters of a Westside shopping center in a search for cardboard. They found plenty of what they were looking for, the intended use of which was known only to them. However, as the couple dug deeper into the trash bin, one of them came across a plastic bag that apparently needed further investigation by them. The bag must have weighed about 25 to 30 pounds or more, but it was easy to pull free from the dumpster. They had it lifted out of the bin and onto the pavement in no time at all. They were anxiously tearing open the bag to examine their new find. And they were probably excited, you know. Wow, it could be electronics, yeah, maybe, or something. Yeah, or maybe some liquor. Might be. At first glance, the contents of the bag simply appeared to be a couple of chunks of discarded meat. Uh, one small piece and one large piece. Probably spoiled and thrown out a couple of days before from the meat department that was next door in the grocery store. However, upon closer examination, the cold, rancid-smelling meat suddenly looked frightening familiar, almost human. While examining the large piece of meat, one of the rummagers noted that there was very little blood, about as much as would be present in butchered prepared beef. Although the smell of the meat was nearly intolerable, the men's curiosity compelled them to examine the smaller piece. Oh my goodness. 
Although the smaller pieces were nearly unrecognizable, it faintly resembled a severed, mutilated female breast. Sick and retching from revulsion, the men threw the meat to the pavement and vomited. Following a few moments of illness and nausea, the two regained some of their composure and rushed to the nearest telephone. Well, you know they didn't do it. <laughs> and they called the Eugene Police Department. Couldn't you just think that you like rummaging for cardboard and then you're like, yeah, wow, like, we got something. And you like that, messing with the meat. You holding yeah, the meat. I think that in the in that um, predicament, I would probably be gagging and throwing up as well. I would like to think in that predicament, I don't think I would be handling the meat. No, why would you like? I mean, it already smells horrible. If it smells like that and it looks like human remains. Well, to start with, it didn't. It looked like beef. Well, But if it stank like that, what you going to do with it? I would throw it back down. Why would you keep looking at it? Anyway, they called the Eugene Police Department and they informed the cops of their discovery. I think they got some kind of reward or something. Well, let's see, but I doubt it. I mean, come on, they're homeless. Get them like a meal or something. Well, I said homeless, but they were called... um, Scavengers. Yeah, but I'm thinking homeless. Scavengers. I don't know. I mean, they're digging through dumpsters. I think that would be... Or maybe they're just... But if you want a cardboard, I'm telling any... If there's any scavengers listening, go to Dollar General... And always outside back, they have a cart full of their cardboard boxes, and they'll let you have as much as you want. Yeah, so you could build a fridge or something. Or a home. Yeah, or or a little home, yeah. Well, due to the lateness of the hour, not to mention the seriousness of the trash bin discovery, the police dispatcher who took the call knew he would have to wake up someone with higher authority. He chose to wake up Lieutenant Don Loniker, Detective Division Commander. I say, can it wait till the morning? <laughs> yeah, it is morning though. Yeah, but you said that it was late. twelve a.m. in the morning. That's morning. That's a.m. Well, after midnight. Well, technically, early it's morning. morning, but it's late. Yeah, I would not or want early. to be w- woken up. You lost your place. Nope. Yeah. I was just seeing if you were there. When Lieutenant Loniker and the first police units arrived, officers immediately cordoned off the area to hold back the curious onlookers. And I'm wondering, like, if it's really early in the morning, why are there so many onlookers? I wouldn't know. And the graveyard shift of press members in an attempt to preserve any bits of evidence that might be present. After the area had been completely sealed off, police detectives took statements from the two midnight rummagers regarding the events that led to the discovery of the two pieces of meat. The police personnel set up lights and began going through other trash bins and garbage cans in search of still more body parts. But when it was evident there was nothing more of any significance to be found, the two pieces of meat were wrapped up and sent off to the medical examiner's office. In the meantime, the Eugene Police Department launched a massive search effort of other garbage dumpsters and cans in the vicinity of the West Side supermarket where the alleged body parts were discovered. Unfortunately, their efforts were futile. A few days later, Dr. Ed Wilson, Deputy Lane County Medical Examiner, reported that tests had determined that the larger piece of meat was that of a female thigh. Uh Uh-oh. 
which had been severed just above the knee and from the growing, growing to the waist, <laughs> and that the smaller piece was a female breast ravaged by so many human teeth marks that it was nearly indistinguishable as a human anatomical part. Dr. Wilson reported that further tests were being conducted in an attempt to identify the victim's blood type. Meanwhile, police detectives began checking their female missing persons files, singling out two young women who were reported missing at approximately the time the body parts were discovered in the shopping center dumpster. The cops considered Elizabeth Green as the most likely victim, although no hard evidence had been found linking the 24-year-old mother to the mysterious and gruesome thigh and breast. Mrs. Green was described by friends and relatives as a dependable and devoted mother and was reportedly to have picked up her infant daughter at the hospital on the day of her disappearance. According to hospital officials, Mrs. Green arrived at the hospital on the day in question at approximately 11 a.m., and she nursed her baby that had been born five weeks premature. She was last seen by a parking lot attendant as she drove away from Eugene's Sacred Heart General Hospital shortly after 11 a.m., and her car and purse were found the next day in separate parking lots in the 14 and 1500 blocks of Franklin Boulevard. Pamela Lee Bruno, 24, was another woman the cops added to their list of possible victims. Mrs. Bruno, a childless housewife, was described as white, 5 feet 8 inches tall, and approximately 165 pounds. She had blonde shoulder-length hair and hazel eyes. She lived with her husband in the 4600 block of Main Street in nearby Springfield, in one of several run-down, almost uninhabitable apartments. According to Springfield Police Chief Brian Riley, That's where we live. Well, not the same Springfield, but I know it's not. Okay, I was just making sure you knew. That's in Oregon, right? I thought you said it was Springfield. No, I thought that you said it was from Oregon or something, or Matt, somewhere around that, right? Well, I know there's a Springfield, Illinois. Or maybe it's in Illinois. But yes, this is Oregon. You're listening really good. That's what I said. (coughs) Excuse me. Okay. According to Springfield Police Chief Brian Riley, Mrs. Bruno was last seen by her husband, Johnny, at their apartment on February 16th. According to Riley, she was wearing a short brown plaid coat, blue jeans, and brown shoes. She did not own a car and relied on hitchhiking and taxicabs for her transportation. Considered by many to be a heavy drinker, Mrs. Bruno was known to frequent the local bars and taverns. According to Mrs. Bruno's husband, Pamela was gone when he awoke on the morning of February 17th. However, he didn't report her missing until February 22nd. (coughs) Good Lord. Yeah. This has happened several times in the past, according to Mr. Bruno. And it was not unusual for her to be gone that long. According to Chief Riley, Mrs. Bruno was reported missing eight or nine times in recent years. But her most recent disappearance was different and unusual because none of her friends or relatives had heard from her for over two weeks. 
And she was never gone for more than two or three days at a time. Yeah. In the meantime, with only the thigh and the breast to work with, forensic scientists from the Oregon State Police Crime Labs and experts from the University of Oregon were able to determine, by studying the bones, that the victim was a young woman between 18 to 30 years of age. And 18 that, to 30, that's a big gap. Well, with a thigh and a breast, I'm, I think that's pretty good. Okay, yeah. And that she was of medium weight, approximately 140 to 160 pounds. Okay. They also determined that the blood type found in the severed parts was not of the same type as Mrs. Green. So that eliminated her as the possible victim. Yeah. However, the scientists were continuing to work around the clock in an attempt to connect the severed body parts with Mrs. Bruno. And that's not Mrs. Bruno Mars. No. But unless they could locate some kind of official record listing her blood type little progress and leaking the parts was unlikely. The scientists did say, however, that the description they arrived at fit more accurate, accurately with Mrs. Bruno than with Mrs. Green, which I guess it doesn't matter because they've already eliminated Mrs. Green. Exactly. And any other woman who was missing at the time. The technique the scientists used to confirm that the thigh came from a woman was relatively simple, though. They merely examined tissue samples under a microscope in search of bar bodies, which in simplest terms are tiny specks or dots appearing in the nucleus of a cell that are present in females but not in males. Did you know that? I did not. The detectives turned to the help of an anthropologist specializing in bone structures to help narrow down the age gap of the victim. The technique involved was far more complicated than those used in determining whether or not the victim was male or female. They had to make estimations and calculations based on measurements of the length and diameter of the thigh bone and compare their findings with statistical tables and graphs. But when their tests were completed, they determined that the victim was between 25 and 30. So that's a... That's a little bit narrower. We're taking a further interest in Springfield's missing women, said Lieutenant Don Loniker after conferring with other detectives from several local law enforcement agencies. In the meantime, Springfield Police stepped up their efforts in their search for Mrs. Bruno and checked further into the backgrounds of the missing woman and her husband. The cops soon discovered that the Brunos had lived in the Springfield area for about three years, having moved there from Vancouver, Washington. They were married for seven years but had no children. Digging still further into their backgrounds, police detectives soon discovered that Johnny Bruno was convicted in Vancouver for driving while under the influence of intoxicants and for hit and run, and that both he and his wife were convicted of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. So they had a little, little, yeah. little, sus, little suspect. Yeah. According to the Bruno's former probation officer, the latter charge was a result of an incident in which Mrs. Bruno invited two 15-year-old girls into their apartment and gave them alcoholic beverages, then proceeded to have explicit sexual intercourse with her husband 
as the two girls excitedly looked on. Wow. Johnny Bruno then had intercourse with one and possibly both of the young girls during the incident after arousing their interest in sex. Meanwhile, police divers searched the area near the university and the parking lots where Mrs. Green's car and purse were found, but they found nothing to help them locate the missing woman. According to Lieutenant Loniker, however, divers did find a rusty knife in the water, but denied that it had any significance to the severed thigh and the breast. Loniker did say, however, that the severed thigh appeared to have been cut with a knife. Hmm, well, I mean, knife, saw, I mean, it's not too many things going to be cut with. Yeah. He also said that he had temporarily suspended the search for additional anatomical parts and other physical evidence connected with the murder and missing persons cases after a week of exhaustive efforts. We've simply run out of places and directions to go, he had stated. In the meantime, on February 28th, detectives went to the Bruno's cottage in Springfield to obtain hair samples from Mrs. Bruno's hairbrush, and they attempted to find out what her blood type was by conferring with her husband, and I'm sure he knew. You never really know. I don't know my wife's blood I mean, type. I don't know <laughs> oh my, my own. God. I don't know my own blood type. I Do mean, you? No. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, it's probably something I didn't I might, find it any importance. Really. I mean, I guess probably we need to learn that so that if somebody goes missing, you would know. Hmm. Anyway, he simply repeated that he didn't know her blood type. And all that detectives were left with were a few strands of long blonde hair and the frustration of knowing that it was likely to be some time yet before positive identification of the severed thigh and breast could be made. According to Dr. Ed Wilson, the Lane County Medical Examiner, Investigators knew that the female victim had not been dead for long unless the thigh and breast had been preserved by freezing it, which they didn't, they didn't think that had happened. He also said they could only retrieve a small blood sample from the body parts, but stressed that it would be enough for the Oregon State Police Crime Labs to establish the victim's blood type. If the scientists could have obtained more blood, they would have attempted to measure the amount of prolactin, which is a hormone, in the blood and could possibly have determined whether or not the victim had been nursing a child because okay. there's more prolactin if you're nursing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that was a clue that could have been of vital importance to an investigation of this nature. But considering the small amount of blood that they had to work with, the blood type identification was the best that they could hope for. Yeah. The first real breakthrough in the case came when detectives finally learned Mrs. Bruno's blood type through her medical records in Vancouver, Washington. And they did not release that to the press. Almost as soon as they had discovered the missing woman's blood type, the Oregon State Police Crime Labs reported to detectives that their samples were of the same blood type as Mrs. Bruno's. Considering that detectives now knew that the victim was a female, Caucasian, 5 feet, 4 inches to 5 feet, 7 inches in height, and that she weighed approximately 140 to 160 pounds, 
They now felt that Pamela Bruno might be the victim that they had been so savagely butchered. A short time later, Springfield police detectives Don Bond. Don Bond. <laughs> I always weird names. Paid a visit to the Bruno apartment. He told Mrs. Bruno's husband that it was likely his wife was dead and that it was now believed that the thigh and the breast were parts severed from his wife's body. Although they were not 100% certain Mrs. Bruno was the victim. I say maybe wait till you're 100% certain. Yeah, I mean, don't go, I don't know, just don't. While Detective Bond was relating the details to Mr. Bruno, Bruno's dog came barking into the room, at which time Bruno became extremely irritated and angry with the animal. I've got to get rid of that damn dog, too, Bruno remarked to Bond. Oh, no. It was at that precise moment that Bond began to suspect that Bruno killed his wife. Although he didn't immediately acknowledge Bruno's apparent little slip of the tongue, instead he acted as if he hadn't noticed and asked Bruno to visualize the severed thigh found in the trash bin. Astonishingly, Bruno described to Detective Bond precisely how the thigh had been severed. The investigation continued, and finally on March 10th, the severed thigh and breast were positively identified through laboratory analysis as being parts of what was once Pamela Lee Bruno. With this sudden new development, police went to the Bruno apartment with search and arrest warrants. But in spite of their efforts, they could find no traces of blood or other physical evidence that would indicate the murder occurred inside the Bruno's residence. Police arrested Johnny Charles Bruno just the same and took him to the police, Springfield Police Headquarters for further questioning. Bruno was cooperative for the most part and seemed to want to help the police. On a cop's hunch, Detective Bond told Bruno that they thought someone else was also involved in the grisly murder. Who do you think did it? Even if, like, if you never heard of it, who would you suspect Well, killed? Well, by what he said, I would think him. At least he had something to Supposedly, do with it. I mean, he did say, I've got I mean, to like, get rid of that damn dog, too. So he's gotten rid of yes, something else. But he could have gotten rid of a cat. But, I mean, like, like that's like on all forensic file episodes. It's normally the person that you suspect on them TV shows. So maybe it's not like that this time. Right. Because usually know. on forensic files, however... It's always the person that you suspect. Well, it's because it's the person that's not talking. Exactly. Except for one episode, it did have the person that did it talking. But you didn't see that episode. I was like, oh my gosh. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and they just got released? I know. I guess they were, they were in prison doing the interview, but you couldn't tell. Yeah, you can't tell. Okay. Well, you could at the very end whenever he got up and he had chains on. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, you know, don't you? Bruno told the cops. He then broke down and cried, making a full confession of how his wife was repeatedly stabbed and dismembered 
and implicated one of his friends and co-workers, Charles Haynes, 31, and Haynes's wife, Leonetti Anita, also 31. The two men worked together for nearly three years as tree planters for a local firm, and Mrs. Bruno and Mrs. Haynes were known to associate with each other when the Brunos would visit the Haynes's. Tree planters. So, you ask right before I was about to give you that answer. On Saturday, March 11th, police went to the Haynes' rented house in Eugene, located on the 800 block of West 5th Avenue. It was a poor area of town, and they arrested Charles Leroy Haynes. The next day, when Mrs. Haynes appeared at Springfield Police Headquarters, she was also arrested. Really? All three suspects were accused of acting in concert with each other when the stabbing of Mrs. Bruno occurred, which police alleged was on or about February 21st, and each allegedly participated in the subsequent ritualistic dismembering of the victim's arms, legs, breast, head. It's pretty messed up, ain't it? District Attorney Pat Horton would only describe the murder weapon as a stabbing instrument. Are you serious? I guess he was being safe. <laughs> oh my goodness. There was a certain uniqueness in this case. <coughs> oh, sorry. Said the um, Horton Springfield Police Chief Brian Riley stated that he couldn't remember a murder case as gruesome. And he went on to praise the cooperative efforts of Springfield and Eugene Police Departments. I've seen a lot of investigations of crimes involving more than one jurisdiction done in other places, said the police chief. But I've never seen it done as effectively as it was here. In the meantime, Lane County District Court Judge Gregory Foote ordered that the suspects were held without bail at the Springfield City Jail. And they were going to be appointed attorneys by the court. Police now allege that Pamela Bruno was killed and slaughtered at the Haynes' residence in Eugene. So they went to the house to investigate. Wearing an oxygen mask and tank inside the house, Miss Vaughn used special chemicals that emit toxic fumes to search for trace evidence in each of the rooms of the house. Brooke but, said, huh? What it picks up, like, fingerprints and stuff? Ain't that that mm-hmm. kind of... Like, nihydrine or something? Nihydrine? They always talk about that. On and so, I don't know, but what's that other glue fume? Oh, gosh, super glue oh fume. Oh, God, it's so... <laughs> they talk every, almost every And so, they, they did super glue, glue fuming, Which is when... <laughs> A piece of evidence, a little bit of superglue was placed (laughs) in an airtight box and then heated, and then the fumes adhere to any of the fingerprints. (laughs) That's exactly how it is. Anyway, so they hadn't gotten superglue fuming yet. I think we could be detectives now, don't you? (laughs) We've only watched about 200 and something episodes of Friends. I swear I think we've watched more than that, but we may have not have. Anyway, we've only got two more Collections left. left. Yep. Oh my goodness. We're on collection eight now, ain't we? Mm, Almost on six. eight. Six. It's eight no. collections. 
we were on seven yesterday, almost finishing seven. Well, we only have one collection. We right? watched. Well, the TV stayed on, and we watched like eleven yesterday. Remember? Well, anyway. <laughs> well, you might have not been paying attention, but it went from, um, like. Okay, back to the story. To Thirty something. Okay, back to the story. Cool. However, district. Attorney Horton and police officials refused to comment further on the case, saying only that a Lane County grand jury would be asked to indict the three suspects. Indict? Yeah. Indict. Indict. Sorry. (laughs) When asked whether additional body parts had been found, Horton replied that to his knowledge, additional body parts had not been found. So what did they do with it? Maybe they ate it. On Thursday, March 16th, a Lane County grand jury returned murder indictments against Johnny Charles Bruno, Charles Leroy Haynes, and his wife, Leonetti Anita Haynes. The three suspects were transferred to the Lane County Jail in Eugene, where they were held without bail. As the weeks passed and turned into months, detectives continued their investigation of the butcher murder of Pamela Bruno but chose to remain tight-lipped about their results, preferring to save the details for the soon-to-begin trials. It was Tuesday, May 23, 1978, and the Lane County Circuit Court of Judge Roland Rodman was filled to capacity, with hopeful spectators being turned away. Johnny Charles Bruno was the first to go on trial for the brutal slaying and butchering of his wife, a trial that the people of Eugene and Springfield would not soon forget. Deputy District Attorney Brian Barnes' opening statement was a recounting of the events of the February 24th discovery of the severed thigh and breast, a synopsis of the investigation leading to the arrest of the three suspects and details of Bruno's confession. He said that at the end of the case, No matter what evidence the state presents, you're not going to have a pretty picture. You're going to be looking at a Charnel house. No, don't even ask. Just look it up. Fine, I will. I suggest to you it was more than a Charnel house, countered Prosecutor Barnes, which, as I understand it, is a place where dead bodies and bones are deposited. Why didn't you just say Because... It was more like a slaughterhouse, an unparalleled, ritualistic killing involving blood, guts, gore. It's something that you won't easily forget. End quote. It was noted that Carp had filed notice of intent to argue that his client's defense of extreme emotional disturbance or mental defect, which under the Oregon statute is the same as an insanity plea. However, he reserved the right to change his defense theory if necessary. When Prosecutor Barnes described how Mrs. Bruno's body had allegedly been strung up over the bathtub in the Haynes' residence and disemboweled and butchered like an animal, Mrs. Bruno's mother, grandmother, and aunt all left the courtroom crying. To visualize how a loved one had been drained of her blood, and had her entrails scraped out into a cold porcelain bathtub. That's disgusting. Then to hear details of the grisly 
dismemberment of breast, of head, dismemberment of arms, cutting off of legs was understandably more than a relative of the deceased could hear. In his statements, Barnes said that the state would prove that Miss Bruno's death was caused intentionally by her husband and Mr. and Mrs. Haynes during an evening of alcohol, that marijuana, and group sex, which included sadomasochistic acts. Do you think she was alive during most of that? Well, let's keep going. Dr. David Myers, Assistant Lane County Medical Examiner, who examined the tissue of the thigh and breast, told the court that the breast was so mutilated by human teeth marks that he could not immediately recognize it. He also told the court that the body parts had almost no blood, leading him to believe that Mrs. Bruno's body had been drained of blood through a cut or a wound caused by the women's the woman's killers. The feeling in the courtroom was cold and dismal in a psychological sense rather than physical. It was generally felt that in order for Mrs. Bruno's body to have been so completely drained of blood that her killers would have had to have her strung up over the bathtub for quite some time. I mean, they literally did it like they were... Cutting open a deer and cleaning mm-hmm. it out. Yeah. But at least the deer was dead. Well, I mean, I... Well, after, I mean, she would definitely be dead after her blood was drained. I think she was dead before they started draining it. Hopefully. A clear indication that her killers were in no hurry to get rid of her body. And that they might well have even enjoyed the ritualistic killing and subsequent hacking up of the victim's corpse. On the third day of Bruno's murder trial, a packed courtroom of curious spectators and a shocked jury listened intently as a taped statement Bruno made to police was played. In the taped statement, Bruno made while being interviewed by Springfield Police Detective, Bruno described how he and his wife Pamela hitchhiked into Eugene and arrived at the Haynes' home at about 8 o'clock p.m., Bruno said that after some heavy drinking, and he was known to down a six-pack of beer in less than 20 minutes, and a lot of pot smoking, Charles Haynes and the Brunos decided to have a session of group sex. According to the tape, Pamela Bruno had agreed at first to participate in the group sex with her husband and the Haynes's. Pam agreed at first, said Bruno on tape. Then she didn't want to, so we took her in the other room and we just tied her up. He also stated on the tape that he bit one of his wife's breasts so hard that he took off the nipple. Oh my God. How now do you this even do was that? while she was alive. That's, that's like biting, biting. That's all. like a damn animal. Yeah. He also stated on the tape that Mrs. Haynes was the first one to stab the victim because she was so pissed off when she saw her husband having sex with Mrs. Bruno. Maybe they shouldn't have agreed to have a group sex because I'm not thinking that any of them I don't understand. (laughs) I don't think that she was too happy about that, but she agreed to do it. I don't understand. 
He further stated that Charles Haynes stabbed the victim several times after Mrs. Haynes passed him the knife and that he stabbed his wife only once. Bruno said he stabbed his wife in the chest after Charles Haynes passed him the knife, but he stated that he didn't do it very far because he was so weak and leaning against the wall and everything. He couldn't believe it was happening. Haynes stabbed her quite a few times, Bruno's taped voice said, repeating that he stabbed his wife only once. Quote, I don't even think I got into her far enough because I was so weak at that point and I was just so scared. Unquote. The tape continued and the defendant's voice told the details of what occurred after the stabbing. Chuck says, according to the tape, We gotta do something about this now. We're gonna have to cut her up, he says. Bruno then Everything's dis- so country whenever you Yes, because I'm country. But also they're taught their speech is country. It's very redneck. Really? Yes. I don't know why. They're from Oregon? I don't know why. Okay. Just like he says, he doesn't say because, he says because. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Bruno then described how he helped Haynes drag Pamela into the bathroom. Occasionally, he would break down and cry as he told the horrible details. The blood. The torn flesh. According to the tape, once they had the victim's body hung up over the bathtub, her blood was drained. Later, the Haineses and Bruno allegedly cut up Mrs. Bruno's body with a butcher knife, placing the severed parts into several plastic garbage bags. They then drove away with the packaged parts and deposited the parts in trash containers around various areas of Eugene. However, the only body parts that had been recovered by the police were the breast and the thigh. When asked by Detective Bond in the taped interview if he knew what he was doing on the night of the murder, Bruno replied that he did know right from wrong at the time. Bruno's attorney had been trying to show Bruno was too drunk on the night of the murder to form the specific intent to commit murder. When asked if the act of sex and violence would have taken place had there been additional people present, Bruno answered, quote, I would have gotten some help. I would not have been so scared to be alone with him. Unquote. In yet another statement, Bruno made the implication that Haynes had ordered him to participate in the killing and the savage butchery. Well, there's this little word you can say. It's called no. Well, what if he would have stabbed him instead? I mean, they he did go and tie her up in the bedroom whenever she didn't want to have sex. Instead of doing that, they could have just quickly exited out the door. That is true. That was before they even had a knife. <laughs> I don't know. I think they were enjoying it. Yeah, he was enjoying it. Yeah, I think that he was even enjoying just watching it. Warren Reed, a neighbor of Bruno, took the witness stand and testified that the Brunos fought regularly. 
He testified that Bruno had attempted to throw his wife in front of an oncoming car. Wow. <laughs> and that he saw Bruno kick Pamela in the back of her head while he was wearing steel-toe work boots. Reed no, also you know told... How bad that hurt. Yeah. Well, not... Not personally, but I can imagine. They're steel-toe work boots. <coughs> Reed also told the court that Mrs. Bruno would very often insult her husband in front of others, telling everyone about her sexual activities with other men that were way better than her husband. Wow. (laughs) He would sit back and he would take it for a long time, said Reed. But then he would become violent with her, and she would fight the hell back. Okay. He further stated that the Brunos were drunk or becoming drunk every time he was with them and that they fought in his presence almost every time he visited with them. Yeah. As Reed continued his testimony, he said once that Pamela actually talked about how short her husband's dick was (laughs) for over 30 minutes before Bruno then became enraged and started hitting her. She then hit him back. I mean, I would become pretty mad too, but I think that's the time where I would get a divorce. Yeah, maybe. He said that after Pamela's disappearance, Bruno had told him that he knew Pam wasn't going to return. Okay. And he said that Bruno asked him at least two or three times that if he was able to kill someone, According to Reed, Bruno often talked about killing and death in relation to Bruno's army experiences in Vietnam, where he received a bronze star for bravery before being reduced from the rank of specialist for to private for leaving his guard duty post to see his wife. Really? On the seventh day of Bruno's trial, the defense called Portland psychiatrist Dr. Barry Maletsky to testify that Bruno blacked out on the night of the murder. Maletsky, an expert on alcohol's effects on the brain, testified that Bruno appeared to remember very little about what occurred on the night of his wife's murder and that his apparent lack of memory was caused by alcohol. In a blackout, said Maletsky, a person is not processing or retaining information in a normal way. He also said Bruno didn't forget or repress what happened the night his wife was killed but that the memories were never formed in his brain in the first place due to alcoholic blackout. Exactly. I can't remember nothing. It was clear that the purpose of the defense was to show that Bruno didn't intentionally commit murder. I mean, he did, but I'm just saying, like... Even though he admitted to police that he was involved. Well, kind of seems like he remembered cutting her up and stuff because he did confess to the police about all the stuff. Yeah. It isn't, and he remembered he only stabbed her once, remember? Is that what he said? Yeah, that's what he said, but he also was stating how many times other people stabbed her and who stabbed her first. Seemed like he remembered a lot. Yeah. It is necessary to point out at this stage of the trial that even if the jury accepted the arguments of no intent, Bruno would still be convicted of felony murder, which according to legal statutes, is a murder committed in the course of another felony, such as rape or sodomy. I thought it was capital murder. Well, felony murder 
This is not a map. It should, I thought it was the same thing. It is. Uh-huh. I think that um, Pamela was a big part of Mr. Bruno's life, continued Maletsky, and that he would not have planned to murder her. He said that John was not a leader. He was not a strong person. And that it was absolutely inconceivable for him that he was able to plan such a crime. I ain't, I don't even think it was planned. I just think that they were I like, they just, smoked marijuana, got drunk, it, and then they were like, let's do this. And they got this. pissed that she didn't want to do it. I think we should be prosecutors. He went on to say that Bruno was constantly struggling to be accepted by others and he always wanted to be accepted in a group. I think if people suggested things for him to do, testified the doctor, that he would go along with it. Being a loser can do that, too. Yeah. Several other defense witnesses also took the stand and testified that Mrs. Bruno was a very promiscuous woman and that she drank heavily. And according to Daniel Oson a volunteer for the Eastside Baptist Church in Springfield, Mrs. Bruno jeered at her husband when he attempted to become a Christian in the spring of 1977. Now she, I'm not saying she deserved any of it. No, she didn't deserve any of it. But she was pretty mean. (laughs) Yeah, she was kind of mean. But he was pretty mean too. I think it was just a hate relationship. I just don't know why they stayed together. And just because she was promiscuous, how about on this night she didn't want to be promiscuous? Exactly. And that wouldn't mean that you could kill her anyway. No. Olson testified that when he went to the Bruno's apartment after Bruno called the church, seeking to accept the Lord, but he, when he arrived, Bruno was drunk as a skunk. Like always. <laughs> Olson said he told Bruno to wait until the next night because he should be sober for this religious experience. But when Olsen returned to the Bruno's residence the following night... But he wasn't, though. He was he was high or something, or drunk. He was drunk, and he said to wait until the next night. I know that. I'm talking about the next night. Oh. Well, when he went the following night, he testified, Bruno wasn't home yet. So he sat and talked with Mrs. Bruno, oh. who told him that she was too far gone to be saved and further stated that Mrs. Bruno started bragging about her numerous sexual affairs with many men. With many men? You think, like, some midgets? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Multiple men. I know. <laughs> Another defense witness, Philip Wright, who was an attendant at the service station near the Haynes' home, testified that he observed Mrs. Bruno walking down the middle of 6th Avenue about 3 a.m. on a morning in mid-February. Wright testified that he called her off the street because she appeared to be heavily intoxicated. When she walked over to the station, she asked to use the women's room. But when he told her the station had no restrooms, she just dropped her pants, squatted, and urinated all over the ground in front of him. Oh, wow. At least go behind a tree or a pole. In a rebu- and I'm not understanding what all of this testimony It's just like they're trying to victim blame. I mean, it has nothing to do with her being murdered. Yeah, it really does not. I, I mean, even if she was passed out drunk, it was still mean. Excuse. No, it's just trying to put her in a bad light. But it, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter what a person does. Yeah. 
That has nothing that, to do with them being murdered. To do with, yeah. They're trying to make it seem like she was such the bad person. Yeah, and it's like I'm not hearing any know. like defense saying, you know, I object. <laughs> I'm telling you, we need to be some prosecutors. In a rebuttal, I mean, in a rebuttal to the defense. Not talking like that, though. <laughs> That Bruno blacked out on the night of the murder, the prosecution presented Medford psychiatrist Dr. Hugh Gardner, who testified that Bruno couldn't have possibly blacked out on the night of his wife. That's the night she was killed because he indicated in several ways that he remembered his role in what happened that night, just like I said. Exactly. Bruno had sufficient understanding of what was going on around him to form an intent to kill his wife that night. Said Gardner, he's an um, um, amoral, selfish sociopath who is quite capable of using anybody for anything to satisfy himself. Okay. Well, June Lerner of Newport, Mrs. Bruno's grandmother, was called to the stand as a witness for the prosecution. She testified that Bruno called her on February 24th. Quote, he wandered at Joan... And I could take this, and if we were ready for it, said Mrs. Lerner. (laughs) I asked him what he meant, and he said there had been a stabbing. I asked what he meant, and he said, forget it, and it just hung up. Okay, thank you, Mrs. Jones. Nearing the end of the trial, John and Rose Martin both testified that they were living at the Haines' home, and were, in fact, sleeping in the next room on the night Mrs. Bruno was allegedly killed. They reported that they heard nothing unusual. However, both the defense and the prosecution agreed during the trial that the Martins were deceptive in their answers and that they were questioned during a lie detector test about whether or not they were involved in the killing. And so that was a clear indication that their testimony in court was quite sus. Okay. After closing arguments were orated by the prosecution and the defense, Oh, I hit my elbow. All that could be agreed upon was the uncertainty of whether they would ever know the full story of what happened. We, they didn't yet know whether they had the full story of what took place. And although it seemed longer, the Lane County Circuit Court jury of five men and seven women found Johnny Charles Bruno guilty of felony murder after barely three hours of deliberations because they decided that his wife's death occurred during the course of a sexual assault. In the meantime, While Bruno was awaiting sentencing for his conviction, Charles Haynes' trial date was fast approaching. It was June 13th, only one day before his trial was to begin, that Haynes surprisingly waived his right to a jury trial and was swiftly convicted by Judge William Beckett in a trial by stipulated facts. Judge Beckett immediately sentenced Haynes to life in prison. Wow. (laughs) That didn't help. (coughs) Not at all. It should be pointed out that in his agreement to a trial by stipulated facts, Haynes did not plead guilty to the crime at which he was charged. 
He simply admitted that the state had enough evidence to convict him. In such an agreement, the defendant retains the right to appeal the verdict. If he had pleaded guilty, he would not have the right to appeal, for there would not have been a verdict delivered. Jack Billings, Haynes' attorney, stated that his client would appeal the verdict on the grounds that a portion of the state's evidence was improperly admitted in the case by ruling of Circuit Judge Douglas Spencer. According to the Billings, Spencer ruled on May 18th that statements made by Haynes to the Springfield police about his role in the killing would be admissible in Haynes' trial. However, Judge Spencer rejected Billings' argument that Haynes' statements were inadmissible as evidence. Billings had argued that Haynes' rights were violated because Springfield police allegedly refused to let the defendant talk to a lawyer hired by Haynes' family. But the court ruled that the statements were admissible because Haynes had not hired the attorney in question himself and had no knowledge that an attorney had even been hired. The attorney in question had been retained and dismissed with only a few hours because Haynes' family decided they couldn't afford it. <laughs> In the meantime, Mrs. Haynes was still being held in Lane County Jail awaiting trial. Her trial was postponed four times, and she was denied bail three times. By November 1980, again, two years before my birth, it was beginning to look like she may not go to trial at all, due mainly to the fact that she had remained incarcerated since her arrest in March 1978. Remember, you're supposed to be able to have a speedy trial. Yeah. The Oregon Supreme Court held oral arguments concerning that very issue from Mrs. Haynes' attorney, who pleaded with the court to set his client free because he said that she had been denied a speedy trial. But the Supreme Court denied the request and ordered Mrs. Haynes to remain in jail. But the court said that any further postponement of her trial will no longer be trial within a reasonable period of time and that charges against her would have to be dropped if she could not be tried or released on bail. Meanwhile, the Oregon Supreme Court reversed Charles Haynes' conviction on the grounds that Springfield police kept him from seeing an attorney. Nonetheless, a new trial with a change of venue was ordered, and it was held in Salem. Johnny Bruno and Leonetti Haynes were not so lucky. Bruno's conviction was upheld after his appeal, and he is currently serving a life sentence. Mrs. Haynes was finally brought to trial and convicted of first-degree manslaughter following a trial in which she vehemently maintained her innocence. She was sentenced to 20 years, but the judge ruled that Mrs. Haynes be given credit for the time she spent in Lane County Jail, awaiting trial. In May 1981, Charles Haynes received his new trial in Marion County, but he was convicted after a two-week proceeding and was sentenced to life in prison. Haynes and his wife appealed, but on March 18, 1982, the Oregon Court of Appeals upheld their convictions more than four years after the gruesome murder of Pamela Lee Bruno. Her convicted killer's cases were now fully finished and all are serving their sentence at the Oregon State Penitentiary 
and the Oregon Correctional Institute for Women. Side note, Mrs. Haynes is now applicable. Wow. Yay! I think the moral of this story is don't do sex orgies. If you're not really into it, don't say you want to do it. Yeah, that is, that's, that's true. And no means no. Yeah. And don't kill your wife and cut her up. Exactly. There's easier solutions. Divorce, for one. Yeah. Kill yourself. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, that's my story. Oh, that was great. We're going to take a quick break. Yeah, I think we need a little break. And we're going to be back. Yeah, I've got to take a piss. Let's go. (laughs) With Jeru's story. (laughs) And we are back from the pee-pee break. (laughs) Yes, I thought thought that he had paused it during that time. That's why I said that. So I was talking to him. At least we know how trashy you talk. No, I just thought, (laughs) okay, yeah. But anyway. All right, do you have a story for us? I sure do, Stanley. All right, let's hear it. Okay, well, it is about the South Point Five Killers. Okay. All right. It is was, this down in Florida? It sure is. All right. It was the night of April 27th, 2002 in Miami, Florida. Angel and her boyfriend, Nelson Portobanco, went out to celebrate their five-month anniversary, unknown of the terror that would await them. There were high school sweethearts having dinner at Los Ranchos in Bayside. After finishing their meal, they went to take a moonlit walk near South Point Park in South Beach. After the walk, the couple made their way back to their vehicle. During their attempt to reach the car, five men jumped out of nowhere and ambushed them. One was wielding a gun and another was a knife. The men forced the terrified couple into their pickup truck and drove them off into a night of terror. I'm sorry, but did you say she was a senior? Yes. Okay. They both were. All right. So it makes it even more sad. Yeah. The men were concerned about the security guards that patrolled the area, so they forced the couple to the floor of the rented Ford F-150. Portobanco said was forced in between his knees. Then they demanded Angel's ATM card and PIN number. Once the assailants received both, they stopped at an Amico station on the 3600 block of Biscayne Boulevard. I don't know how to say that, but that might be correct. To withdraw some money. How many, did you say it was five of them? Yeah. Plus those two. <clears throat> yep, so that's seven. In a Ford F-150. That is odd, isn't it? Well, because the two were in the very back. The very, very back. Yeah. Trunk, I meant the tailgate. The, yeah. Okay. And I assume that probably, six. I would assume that probably two were, two, probably two were back there as at this point. Okay. Right now, maybe. Two right. or three, probably. But they went to another gas station, then headed north on I-95. While on the highway, 
Several of the men made their way to the back of the truck. So, I guess the rest of them besides okay. the driver. The very back, back. Yeah. Um, they assaulted Portavanco repeatedly and forced his head down while the attackers went to his girlfriend. She was crying and begging them not to do it until the assailants began taking turns raping her. They did this for almost 20 minutes, and one of the men actually had AIDS. While her boyfriend just had to sit with his head down and listen to his girlfriend being brutally raped, the truck finally began to slow down once they reached North Broward County. They threw Portobanco out of the truck and behind some bushes that protected them from view. They then beat and stabbed him over ten times. Portobanco tried to be smart and play dead, hoping the attackers would stop, but this did not work, and they slit his throat and kicked him a few more times and stomped his head to the ground to Good make God. sure he was dead. The assailants then sped off in the truck. Little did they know Portobanco was not dead. Ow. He got up. I, I really don't. I don't see how. He was just I mean, like even the sta- pouring out blood or something. Even Maybe they, from the stab wounds, you would just be pouring out blood. Even if they didn't hit major arteries. Yeah, but then they sliced his sliced throat. Sliced his throat, smacked, stomped his head. I don't, I don't understand. He got very lucky, I would say, I guess. I read that they're really sucky at stabbing. Yeah. He got up and searched around, thinking his girlfriend had been thrown out. After searching, he ran to the shoulder of the interstate for help. A passing motorist stopped and assisted him, taking him to the hospital where he reported what happened. The attackers realized their rental truck was due back in Orlando the next week, so they decided to get rid of Anna Maria Angel. They raped her a few more times, then pulled over just before the Palmetto Park Road exit in Boca Raton. I'm wondering if one of them had AIDS. Did the other ones know that he had AIDS? Because I don't think I would be joining I will get to that, but yes. Okay, and they still did it, even though he was all up in there. I will also get to that. Ben dragged her to a retaining wall. She cried and begged for her life before being shot at point-blank range. For the next first few days after the crime, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and local authorities conducted a massive manhunt for Angel as Portobanco and her family hoped she would be found alive. Family members even left voicemail messages on her cell phone begging the kidnappers not to harm her. Oh. What? I thought Portobanco was the guy. Yeah. Okay. But a few days after Angel's body was found right where the killers had left it, her hands were frozen in a praying position as if she had died begging for her life. It did not take long for Miami Beach Police and FDLE which is 
Florida Department of Law Enforcement uh, officials to track down the killers. Going off a traced cell phone call and some anonymous tips, the combined authorities arrested five men in Orlando. By April 30th, FDLE officials had arrested brothers Victor Manuel Caraballo and Hector Manuel Caraballo, Joel LeBron, Cesar Mena, and 16-year-old Jesus Roman. I think that their name's Caraballo, though. Is it really? Caraballo. Yeah. That makes more sense. Caraballo. That makes sense, too, but Caraballo, that's how we're going to say it. Um, I just don't want him to come and stab us. Yeah. Jesus. Or Jesus. Yes, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. For the murder, assault, robbery, and rape of the couple. LeBron, who broke down in tears during his confession. Oh, shut up. Don't even. <laughs> admitted to being the shooter. Intent on killing the young woman. LeBron admitted that the first two times he had tried to shoot Angel, his weapon had not fired because no bullet was in the chamber. Now that's smart as hell. Only after his third attempt and listening to the young woman beg for her life, as his revolver would not fire, was he able to complete his crime. And I bet you he wasn't crying then. No. His confession also led police to Angel's body saddening investigators, but giving them enough evidence to move forward with the case. The suspects were all brought to Miami-Dade County and held under suicide watch because all had threatened to kill themselves upon arrest. After being transported to Dade County's Metro West Detention Center, LeBron was quick to take advantage of what he perceived as his celebrity criminal status, oh my God. which, little did he know, definitely was not. He thought that it would have been, but it definitely is not. What he did not understand, however, is that this criminal's um, reference is held for perpetrators of spectacular crimes, not cowardly acts of disgusting violence. Especially ones for which you were caught in less time than it took you to commit the crime. And the fact that the only reason you couldn't fire your gun is because you didn't have a bullet in it? Three times. Wow. <laughs> so while LeBron bragged upon his initial incarceration about the evening of April 27th, his fellow inmates were disgusted. Oh yeah. Cause they don't... Even... Hardened criminals yeah. apparently find it offensive when you brag yeah. about raping and killing an innocent girl. Yep. And so, within a few weeks of arriving at Metro West, LeBron was transferred into protective custody. Why after, protect him? He didn't. I'm... After it was discovered that inmates were planning to kill him long before he would ever stand trial for the brutal crime. Save us some money then. <laughs> exactly. While in protective custody at the pretrial detention center, LeBron then tried to arrange a hit on both a family friend, who was believed who turned him in, and on Portobanco that, so that no eyewitness could testify against him. Because I'm sure there's no DNA. LeBron apparently was not familiar with DNA evidence. <laughs> 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 I, mean, I was just thinking, you know, somebody that like had a blank 
no yeah, looks in the Gunther yeah, account. Probably cleaned up DNA. Well, it was off, often gathered at rape scenes, which of course it was. When word of his attempts reached the police, they spent sent an undercover detective in to meet with LeBron to arrange the hit. Guess what his offering price oh was? Oh, my God, $5. $250, which was still better, but it's nowhere even close for killing two people. Come on. LeBron was never charged with anything as a result, but it was troubling for those on the outside who has to still fear a man who has long since been behind bars. You know, instead of protective custody, maybe just put him in solitary, especially after trying to arrange a hit while you're in protective custody. That is custody. true. Now, put him in solitary. In solitaire, it, it's disgusting. Right. <laughs> it's got, it smells like Shit. urine and, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Well, guess what? LeBron's confession was a key piece of evidence in not only the prosecution, but the four defendants. So let's give him a deal. But now no one can find the confession tape. Oh, my God. <laughs> When, I, when Miami Beach police detective Larry Morero sent tapes to the confession of the confession to FDLE agent Ed Royal, who had also been an important part of the investigation, he found them to be completely blank. Oh my gosh, they forgot to hit record. Assuming Morero had sent him the wrong tapes, Royal asked for the detective to send another copy. When he went to copy the originals, Marrero discovered that those two were blank. They forgot Wait to a second. record. <laughs> Apparently, the device used to record the confession had two settings. Oh one God. to record telephone conversations and the other oh to record live ones. Just hit both. Marrero had not switched the setting over from the previous use of the device and therefore recorded 90 minutes of dead air leaving no audible proof of what LeBron had told oh him. Oh, my God. It didn't matter, though, because Judge William Thomas threw out the confessions, saying that he had not properly been read his Miranda rights, so it didn't really matter. Well, how do you anyways. know? It wasn't recorded. Um, yeah, I don't know. But because of DNA and... Probably because the police was stupid enough to say I didn't read him his Miranda exactly, rights. Exactly, Probably. Or he said it, and then the police say, yeah, I didn't read them. Yeah, I'd be like, no, nah, it was on the record. Oh, wait, I can't find the record. Oh, I can't work okay. Yeah. But because of DNA and witness testimony, they were able to continue with the case. While the dismissal of a confession and a lack of good eyewitness, Portobanco later admitted he cannot possibly identify at least one of the defendants, may have seemed an ominous sign for those Seeking justice for Anna Maria Angel. DNA evidence and testimony from the defendants themselves has proven enough to convict at least one of the killers just um, thus far. But um, as each member of the South Point Five has claimed to have done nothing but watch the others commit the crime, prosecutors have applied the felony statute to the case. I don't holding... know how my sperm got in her. <laughs> that darn sperm just jumped just, from my penis it, all it the walked, time. It walked less and it just crawled in. It swam in the river right <laughs> to her. Oh my goodness. God. Um, Holding anyone associated with the crime, 
as responsible as the one who actually did it. The first to stand trial was Victor Carabolo, right? I thought I the portal was one called. of the states, though, that it didn't matter whether you did it or not. If you were part of it or there, you were guilty. That's what they just said, though. He just, I just read. Oh, I was thinking of that one. Commit the crime, prosecutors had to apply the felony statute to the case holding anyone associated with the committing of a crime as responsible to the one who actually did it. So it wouldn't matter if they said they didn't do it. Yeah, it wouldn't. But I'll get to that for a second. Victor Carabolo, who claimed not only to have not beaten or killed anyone, but not to have have raped Angel either. He says he feared he would catch AIDS if he had done so. At least one of them. At least one of them. His brother Hector, who was infected with the disease, had already raped her repeatedly. He claimed the DNA evidence found on Angel's body was from his masturbating on her. And as such, he was not guilty of the rape. But the jury saw it differently. This past April, nearly five years after... Well... Crap, why did I say past April? It's not this past April. It's the April that it happened, so 2007, okay? In 2007's April, nearly five years after the horrific crime, Caravalo was found guilty of first-degree murder, attempted murder, armed sexual battery, and two counts of armed kidnapping and armed robbery. The jury recommended the death penalty, and Judge Thomas agreed. Why isn't there, like, a charge, like, for just being a piece of shit? You know, like... Yep, you're a piece of shit. I find you guilty. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that should be (laughs) charged. Well, Carabolo had requested the death penalty anyway, so... He faced life in prison without the possibility of parole... And claiming mental illness, said he did not want to spend the rest of his life in prison. I don't care what he wants to do. As it stands, that is exactly what he will do. But his life will be at least presumably shorter. So is he getting the death penalty? That's the one with AIDS, though, isn't it? Um. Wait, wait. No. This was the one who shot her, I think. It's the one who shot her, who actually killed her. Oh. But, um... So why is his life going to be shorter? They must have used a magic eight ball. I don't know. On November 8th, 2007, a Miami jury convicted Caesar Mena... On one count of murder, two counts of armed kidnapping, two counts of robbery... He was acquitted of a rape charge, though. Mm. The three remaining suspects, Joel LeBron, Victor Antonio Caraballo, Caraballo, God, I keep saying that, and Jesus Torres Roman will be tried separately in the case. All except one who was underage at the time of the crime are facing the death penalty. So the other ones are facing the death penalty. I think that he is... I thought that he did get the death penalty. Uh-uh. It says he faced life in prison without the possibility right. of parole. He didn't get the death penalty. Because I guess he didn't. He wanted the death penalty. 
Yeah, you really wanted the death penalty. Yeah, okay, okay. But I don't know why it would be shorter. Maybe because he would get killed in prison. (laughs) Maybe. Hopefully. Hopefully that's well, what'll happen. Maybe so stupid he'd be done killed. Yeah, an film. idiot. But that is all that I've got. It was very horrific. It was very saddening. As they all are. Yeah, every case that involves someone dying is sad. Yeah, even for memes, <laughs> like Mrs. Bruno. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I do, too. I enjoyed it. I thought it was very interesting today. Uh, But please, y'all, let us know what kind of experiences y'all would like for us to create for y'all. So, if you would do that, just just email email us at different things that you would enjoy. Any participating in or doing or having happen. Any one of the three of the emails, you know, just Give us anything that you want want us to do, and then hell, if you want us to fly out for a few thousand dollars to your <laughs> meet you, then <laughs> there you go. But that'll cost some money, but because <laughs> we because we can't afford it. But but anyways. Also, please, 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 thank y'all so much for everybody that has been reviewing us so highly on the different platforms. Yes, Thank we y'all. read every single one of them, and we greatly appreciate it. It just makes our heads get so big. It <laughs> well, makes yours our, is already big, so it, it doesn't makes, change anything. It makes our day. <coughs> Sorry. Oh, my lordy. But for everyone that has not, please go to whatever platform you use. Give us a good rating and just say a little something. Please, please, it really helps us out. Yes. Also, please visit patreon.com slash boondocks and consider joining one of our tiers to help support the continuance of this ad-free podcast and the improvement. Dang, you said a lot in that sentence, didn't you? <laughs> all right, I think that's all that we've got. Well, let me tell you. Okay, which one do you think is worse? What is your phone doing? It's it's on it's on the vibrator. Oh, <laughs> well. Who do you want to okay. use it? <laughs> I'm just playing. <laughs> I don't know if I can really say which one is worse. I don't. Okay, because both of them pretty much aspects. got raped. Well, yes. Mine was tied up too. I really she, don't. She know. was raped. I really don't know. By multiple people. Yeah, I really don't know. And so was yours by multiple people. Yeah, I don't know. Mine was killed. I mean, the Mom only thing different was. After the fact of being killed, mine was then dismembered and treated like an animal. Yes, but I think that the fact that Portobanco had to go through that and get live stabbed and, and slit well, his and throat, live, that his sort of compensates. So I would say that both of ours are pretty equal there. Yeah. All right. Well, that's. I think that's all that we yeah, got for you. Yeah, till next week, or who knows, sometimes we just throw in a little bonus for you. Yeah. I have been Stan. And I'm always Drew, and we'll see you next time, partner. Down in the boondocks, baby. See ya!